Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Rula is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Rula interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at rula.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering. I'm the editor of Rula and this is Rula Conversations. I'm joined today by James Start, Ruler's roving photojournalist, and we're going to talk about his trip to what's been called the Alt opening weekend. Nope, it's not a gravel equivalent of Omloop Het Nieuwsblad, which would probably be easier than riding over the cobbles of Flanders, but the Rhone Alp doubleheader of the Faune Ardèche Classic and the Faune Drôme Classic. We'll also hear from cycling journalist and cultural critic Kate Wagner, who contributed a feature entitled The Many Faces of Suffering to Ruler 117 for a fascinating conversation about cycling's relationship with pain. And finally, Dan Cavallari will be taking his bearings and also talking about them. He's interviewing Enduro Bearings founder Matt Harvey about how sometimes it's the smallest parts of the bike which are actually what keep it moving smoothly. But first, James, you've been to the Ardèche, you've been down south this weekend. How was your trip to the Ardèche and Drôme Classics? Well, I've been covering that uh, race for seven, eight years now. It's kind of become my go-to February race. And I really love the races. They're gorgeous races. Um, brutal. I mean, they're really hard. And they always bring stellar fields. We don't talk about them much, but I mean, the last couple of years, Nibali comes. Last year, Jonas Vindergaard came and won one of the races. And, you know, pretty telling victory since he won on the win of the Tour de France. And this year, you know, we had uh, Julian Alaphilippe came back and just rode brilliantly on Saturday in the Ardèche Classic, attacking right where he wanted to, isolating, going off with the David Godou, you know, who got fourth in the Tour de France and sprinting to victory. And, you know, for Ali Philippe, these two-time world champion, it's a, still a huge victory because he had such a terrible year to sort of come back and knock off one of these is a really important victory for him. So there's great racing, beautiful racing, lovely crowds, tremendous organization, a lot going for these races, and I really love them. Let's go right back to basics with the races. I've been to the races a couple of I went to see them both in 2019, so I know them a little bit. So let's tell the listeners who may not know the region so well and the races so well. What are the races about? Whereabouts in the south of France are you for these races? And tell me about the kind of geographic location. They're in the really the heart of the Rhone River Valley. On one side, there's Ardèche region. On the other side, there's the Drôme. And so one day it races around the hills in the back country of the Ardèche. Sometimes they're coming down these descents with the Rhone River Valley below them or climbing these ascents with the Rhone River Valley. And then they cross over and really it's literally a 10 minute drive from both races. We're just south of Valencia at our hotel and it's a 10 minute drive to the start of the first one and maybe a 12 minute drive to the start of the second one. Um, and there are two different regions, and they're on each side of the Rhone River in the heart of, well, you know, right as sort of that port of entry of the what most people would know as French Provence. You know, beautiful countryside. The final of the Ardèche race goes over these terraced hills of wine vineyards. You often find with races that are geographically proximate, like the, the Belgian opening weekend, yes. Omloop and Kern, Brussels Kern are quite similar in their parkour because they take place in same part of the world and so you get the, the punchy cobbled climbs are the parkour of these two races the same are there subtle differences between the two 
So many of those climbs that, that they did in Hetfolk, or you know, I still call it Hetfolk, Het Newsblad, you find at Tour of Flanders, you find at, at, at many of the races in Belgium. But no, there's no duplicity here. It's one side is in the Drome, and one side is in the Ardèche. And there's a very clear dividing line. It's called the Rhone River. And so they're, they're very different. That said, they both have some pretty uh, good climbs on them. The Ardèche race is basically, the, the main circuit is like, 25 kilometers going up, 25 coming down, or maybe it's 15, I don't know, whatever. But, you know, it goes up and comes down, goes up and comes down. And then they go off and do this other really, really punchy circuit. The other one is a flatter, I would say a little bit flatter, but then with very distinct climbs. So the mountains around there get quite high, don't they? I mean, you're neither in the Alps nor the Massif Central itself, but it's, it's kind of foothills of both. And the mountains are quite high, but I don't think they're taking the riders too high in these races, no. are they, just because of the time of year. I don't know that we even get up to a thousand metres. But yeah, at this point in the season, I mean, it was two degrees down there. And the other thing you have to factor in is the winds. I mean, we get the Mistral winds that whip up and down the Rhone River Valley. And yesterday was a prime example. And we had 60 kilometre an hour winds. That is brutal. And the riders actually discussed not starting because the winds were so high. But in the end, you know, there's so much that gets involved in a race uh, between the race organization, the fans, everything, you know, all the money that's been spent that they cancel or say because it's too windy. You know, that's a huge loss for the sponsors to suffer and for the fans, you know. So I think they, the guys rode the first lap really easy kind of test it out and see what was possible. And then boom, they hit the racing really hard. So let's talk about the racing. Philippe was the winner in the Ardèche Classic. I tuned in with some distance to go and there was a small group away. And then it was Philippe and David Godu who went away. So what was your interpretation of how the race unfolded? Well, you know, I was on the motor. I really had first, first row seat here. And in the recent years, that race has come down to this final climb up this sort of, like I said, terrace, sculpted, wine vineyard hill. Alaphilippe just put his guys to the front on that climb, split the field up, and then when he went, it was only one of the you know best climbers and bench best riders in France and actually in the world. I mean, Godou got fourth in the Tour de France, right? Godou's a tremendous rider. Um, and he's the only guy who could follow. And on the last climb, Godou was you know clearly stronger. You can see it in, in my picture. I mean, he's not grimacing. Alaphilippe's grimacing, but he couldn't shake Alaphilippe. And he knew that he'd have to be able to gap him and stay away to win. Otherwise, he, was, he wasn't going to be able to beat Alaphilippe in the sprint. Alaphilippe, he's been getting all this criticism by his, his, in the press by his, his team manager, Patrick Lefebvre. He had a terrible year last year. He wants to turn the page, and he came here to turn the page, and that's exactly what he did. Did you get a sense that Godou had any chance or was he always going to lose in the sprint against Alaphilippe? Because I, I agree with you. I felt Godou looked like the stronger of the two. Godou is no slouch in a sprint, but, you know, Alaphilippe is fast and there was really very little chance. Let's talk about those first two in the Ardèche race. So what was Alaphilippe's reaction to winning? Did you get a sense that he's back to his best or is this a stepping stone? I don't think that he would say he's at his best, but I think he wanted to... Um, show that he's right on track to be at his best. And that's where he was. Uh, he knew that, you know, the weather reports when I got there, everybody's talking about these high winds on Sunday. So everybody knew that was going to be a kind of crazy day. So I think he really wanted to make his mark on Saturday and he did. And it was, you know, perfect circuit for him with these punchy climbs and everything. You know, not, we're not talking 2000 meter climbs, right? Punchy climbs like that, you know, Alec Feeb's really good. So you know, he's very, very happy. Godou had to be happy. His condition was tremendous. And there's tension on his team between him and Demar and stuff. So he's showing that he's right there as well. Um, with Godou, you actually interviewed him last year, didn't you? And he's known, well, he's particularly topical because he came fourth in last year's Tour de France. Um, he's obviously a very good Grand Tour rider. But he's actually a very good one-day racer as well. He's also come fourth in Liège. So maybe you're right. Maybe a good rider in good form is going to ride a good race, whether it's a one-day race or a stage race. Yeah, I mean, okay, he's not going to win a mass field sprint in the Tour de France, right? But these guys have to be able to ride the win. These guys have to be able to ride a whole lot of things. I talked to Godou about that because uh, we, we sat down at Montreal last year, or Quebec, you know, and I was like, are you a puncher? Or are you a climber? Or what are you exactly? And he's like, hey, we have to multitask today. I have to be able to do both. And they are. 
You know, it was interesting because both of these guys, this is a little bit of a side point, I met both of these guys for the first time when they were still under 23 riders because both of them won the Tour de l'Avenir. No, Alaphilippe did not win it, but he was like, he won stages and he was on the attack and uh, he won the final stage one year and was just all over the race. And these guys both, I mean, they were the creme de la creme of French cycling well before they turned pro and they're now just in their prime. We haven't mentioned yet who won the Rome Classic, Anthony Perez, who did a, well, superb ride, really, because the one thing that you generally hold to be true in cycling is that if you are on your own and riding into a headwind, unless they're really playing silly games behind, you're not in an advantageous position. But he somehow managed to hold the pursuers off, you know, kept them at a minute for, must have been, it's good, it was good 30 kilometres, I think, when I... At least, at least, um, yeah. and brilliant ride. Yeah, he, was, he was already on his own when I started watching. So, what was the secret of his success? Was it just the fact that the wind was the same for everybody, or was he just a, a guy on a super day? He was obviously having a good day. He's a good rider. I mean, you know, not a great rider, but he's a good rider. It was funny because I was on that climb when they, you know, and there was Ali Philippe made an acceleration. Guillaume Martin was kind of looking around. It's a long climb, but there's two other climbs to come. They were kind of looking at each other. And I just photographed Ali Philippe and then I went up the road to kind of wait, or I think the uh, commissaire said, uh, Modo's get up the road, things are heating up a little bit and let's see what settles. And then all of a sudden they came around a turn and there was this Cofidis rider way off the front, I mean, with a big gap. And he got it really quickly and was like, this is not Guillaume Martin, who is this guy? You know, and he just powered away. And I think part of it was, I think the favorites are kind of looking at each other going, uh, too early to go now. And they were kind of peppering it up, but they weren't ready to go. And he went and he got that gap. And all of a sudden, it's like, who's going to chase? You know, who is going to chase? That's always the problem behind. And one thing I did notice, like towards the finale, the speed of the riders was being measured as they rode into the headwind. It was 28 kilometres an hour. Now, even me on a good day, I can average 28 kilometres an hour on a normal day. So that is a measure of how strong that headwind was. And they, they just had to keep on grinding away into it, didn't they? It looked horrible. Dude. I'm telling you, my motorcycle, at one point, my motorcycle, we parked and the wind almost took my moto down. And it's a big moto. It was a big BMW, Perry Dakar style moto, right? It was a big moto and the wind just almost took it down. Signs were down, trees were falling down. It was a lot of wind. I mean, you've been out on a windy ride, big crosswind, and you're kind of like leaning into the wind, right? Your, your body's a little bit angled. We had to do that on the moto. We were just like leaning into it just to stay kind of upright and to counteract it. I mean, I've rarely seen that much wind in a bike race ever. It was it was pretty hairy. Was it a classic Mistral from the north? Uh, I believe it was. Yeah, so that, that wind basically comes down off the Alps, funnels down the Rhone Valley, doesn't it, and just scours. It's brutal. And it's so everything, everything in its way. cold. It's chilly, yeah. It, just, it was just like glacial. You know, I've been in this game for a long time, right? You know, I've done 33 Tours de France, but it's races like this that I really enjoy the most. You know, it was just in San Juan and in Argentina. There it was like 42 degrees and here it was two. I mean, that was a little bit, that was, I didn't want to think about that too much, right? But, you know, I just love these smaller races. Yeah, so do I, I agree. I, some of my favorite races, the small races in France for me, because I'm, I'm a Francophile and for other people, it will be racing in different regions, but... Going back to the races themselves and what marks them out is something that I noticed, you know, I learned a lot more about these two races when I actually went and saw them firsthand. And you, you see those kind of wooded climbs that you get in the Ardèche race. And then there's that very idiosyncratic climb up through the town, the Mur d'Alex in the Drôme Classic, which just in Drôme, which just basically takes the riders straight up on this incredibly steep road. It's not long, but through the town, basically, past the church, past the cafes, up to the car park at the top, and then they're through the town. And what I got a sense of from these races, they had a real identity. And I think that's something that we don't often talk about in terms of bike racing. We often focus on the action, or we focus on the big news and the big riders. But you know, it's these small races which have their unique characters, which form the texture and colour of cycling. And I love these races. I, I thought they were special, individual, unique, even from from each other but they also formed a coherent whole between the two and i'm glad that the big teams and the big names are still going to these races and taking them seriously because it it just underpins the whole sport and make makes it 
seem like you know it's more than just those nine or ten really huge events it's about these smaller races as well well i think a couple of things i think there's a a bit of a renaissance with these races probably due to covid that people are like do we really have to travel so far all the time and there are all these great races when i got into this game i mean there was no racing in the middle east that just did not happen there was no down under that shows you about how long i've been in this game you raced the guys raced in spain southern france and italy you know la guelia and in italy we got we had the haribo classic remember that where you win your weight in in bonbons and guys would just stay within a similar area and that has kind of happened again i mean you, you still have etoile de Bessèges, which has been around forever and then Let's just assume that the Tour Med, uh, the Tour de la Provence comes back because that, that sort of replaced the Tour Med. And I think it will. And then you go to the Hofar, which is now our two-day race. There's Hofar and, and uh, Alpe Maritime. And then you do Ardèche. And that makes a whole nice package of racing in February. And they're, they're small races in one sense, but they offer a really nice prep to the early season. And it's showing because you they consistently attract good, good fields. There's just a lot of soul in these races and a lot of history and a lot of love. And it shows. And February is not necessarily the high tourist season at all for these regions, but the Ardèche especially is a region that's close to my heart because I used to work summers there when I was a teenager. So I would, I would urge any of our listeners to explore these regions if you ever get the opportunity because they are stunningly beautiful, much quieter than the real tourist traps and got a charm and character all of their own. So, James, there's no rest for the wicked, nor for cycling photographers. You're off on your travels again imminently, aren't you? Wednesday, I go down to, uh, hey, Italy, Siena. And you know what that means? That means Strade. So I love, you know, I've only covered that race since 2020. But once I, the problem with Strade is when you cover it once, you want to cover it again. And so um, going down again, you know, I, Pogachar and I, we sort of understand each other. We do Strade, and then we jet back to Paris to do Paris-Nice. Uh, so then I hit Paris-Nice after that. But I'm not Pogachar, so I don't have a private jet, and I won't be at the start on Sunday. I want to have somebody cover that stage for me, and I'll pick it up uh, Sunday night and Monday. I think you're made of sterner stuff, James, because Pogachar announced that he wasn't going to do Strade. <laughs> oh, did he? After, okay. after all. But I'm uh. looking forward to seeing what you get from Strade Bianca, as always, and Paris Nice, which is a, another one of my favorite races, being a Francophilic it, it, it cycling is. journalist. The visual narrative of Paris Nice is just so amazing. You start in the north, somewhere around the capital, and you cut through the heart of the Diagonal David and the heart of deep France, and then you end up down on the Côte d'Azur. I mean, it's just such a stunning narrative, all that packed into one week, that um, it's hard to pass up. But it's one of the hardest races, I mean, because we can have a week of the weather we had this weekend in, in Ardèche, and it's pretty brutal on a bike every day. At least it'll be a tailwind if you're going from Paris to Nice. Well, looking forward to seeing what you get from those races. Next up, we've got Kate Wagner talking about pain, suffering, and cycling's relationship with it. James, do you embrace the pain, or is it something you try to avoid? It's certainly one of the things that I attracted me the most to the sport when I got into it. And like you, I came, uh, I also... Um, had a background in long endurance running, marathoning and stuff. And, you know, you got to be able to push your body really hard in those sports. And that's something that I was looking for and something that I loved. And then I saw the mixing up of just the huge endurance effort combined with these cobbles and the weather and all of that. And I was like, that's my sport. So, yeah, that's why definitely one reason I got into it. But today it's two degrees here in Paris and windy like it was yesterday. And I looked at the sun. I said, maybe I'll go for a ride. And then I looked at the thermometer and I saw the winds. I said, maybe I won't. You know, so I think there comes a point where all that suffering has, is relative. And I'm beyond the racing years. I'm, I, I do this for the love. I, I ride religiously, but I do it for the love of fitness and feeling good. And sometimes when the pain and suffering is, is too much, I said, that's not going to make me feel good. That's just going to wear me out more. And, and I was pretty wasted coming back from uh, our desk. So I'm taking, I'm taking a rest day. Sensible decision. James, thank you for joining us. Next up, me, Kate Wagner and Payne. So Kate Wagner is one of my favourite cycling writers. A graduate of music technology, architecture blogger, cultural critic, polymath, 
trainer enthusiast, art and poetry expert and Slovenophile, Kate explores the overlap between cycling and pretty much everything else and writes beautiful long-form features. And we're privileged to have one of her latest, The Many Faces of Suffering, in Rouleau 117. Kate, how are you and where are you? I'm good. I'm actually still in Chicago uh, and it's February in Chicago, so it's cold and though there's a little bit of sun, so I'm better than usual. So the commissioning process for the feature was pretty simple for this one, as far as I remember, Kate. I think I said to you the theme of the magazine was body. And I think you tweeted something or written something about the physicality of cycling, but also how we kind of fetishize it as well, and maybe even to an unhealthy level. And when we were talking about this, you, you came back to me and suggested we could maybe do an analysis of suffering and looking at both the physical pain of cycling, but also the psychological pain and to look at what the limit is. So in the course of researching, writing this feature, what did you learn about suffering and what form did your research take? I thought it was really interesting. So I talked to a number of cyclists who were all very different from one another. I talked to members of the men's and women's peloton. And I was actually surprised that the responses were fairly universal in terms of how they described suffering. Like, for example, using this word, you know, I'm on the limit. And so like kind of probing what, what the limit was and this way of describing how you really just like can't go past this point. And maybe if you do, you're confronted with your own hubris, you know. And another thing that was really interesting about this piece was despite how different the cyclists were, because you had time trialists, you had Ellen Van Dyke, who was the hour record holder, and you have Lawson Craddock, who had a shoulder injury in the 2018 tour and rode the whole tour with that injury. And so these are very different types of suffering. And the one thing that changes between all of them is the motives, you know, behind why they continue to suffer. For example, like Lawson Craddock was like, I just think about my family. I can't think about anything else. And meanwhile, like Balcomalama was just like, oh, I just pace myself you know, keep riding my own race and you don't think about it that much. And so there's just these different answers and these different rationalities across riders and personalities, which is really fascinating. But one thing was universal, which was this word, the limit. So what's your understanding of the limit? I mean, I think from a technical standpoint, the limit is just the point where you're really riding at your sort of highest threshold. And if you don't pace yourself, you will essentially bonk. And it's interesting how, you know, for example, Marlon Royster said something really interesting to me, which was that she didn't think that the kind of limit that you and I as hobby cyclists are riding is any different from that of the pros in terms of how it feels. It's still just that that feeling of like, I can't give any more to this possibly. I mean, lactate is just burning in your legs. Your lungs are just, you know, heaving. There's just nowhere else to go. I mean, what was interesting is Lawson described it as kind of a long tunnel, which was interesting. It's such a ephemeral and such a abstract physical sensation that is shared almost like a belief across all athletes. It's very almost sort of mystical, despite being obviously grounded in, in the physical aspects of the body. You can do tests that measure your lactate production and things like this. VO2 max or whatever, but the metaphysical side of it is all very kind of mystical, which I think is kind of wonderful. There's two funny things about pain. First, we're very bad at remembering our own pain, and I think that's a survival mechanism in a way. And also, we can never really imagine or understand or experience someone else's pain. Yeah, I think that's true. This piece really came together when I was having some conversations with Yanni Brakovic when I was still living in Slovenia. He was saying that, you know, pain is really universal. People watch cycling. And he said something similar in the, in the formal interview. But he said people watch cycling because they see their own pain mapped onto others in this very physical way. And so it's some way for them as viewers to sublimate their own suffering onto somebody else. He said in the piece on the interesting, it's like he's like a single mother struggling with money. Do you not think that she suffers? And it's like, yes. This, this suffering, this glorious suffering that we see in cycling is really just another mirror of the suffering that we see in everyday life. And I think that has a lot to do with why cycling is such a powerful sport to watch. Because, I mean, I watch basketball, right? And they're not really suffering, except for when they're losing. But that's kind of just more embarrassing. 
but you can really see some pain on those faces, you know, on Luzar de Den or whatever. Your starting point in the feature is actually a ride. Um, you described a ride that you went on, which you experienced what seemed to be a certain degree of pain. I always like it when writers do their research that deeply. So tell me about your own relationship with cycling pain. I mean, for me, I am really like the definition of an amateur cyclist. I was really trying to get in shape for a long time and then decided I just wanted to do it for fun and just to get outside. And But when I was in Slovenia, I had to ride my bike around. Otherwise, it would have been a waste of time being there because it's so beautiful. And there's so much great cycling around there. So a friend of mine took me up this climb outside of Ljubljana, which is actually where Roglic has a condo. And before his condo, you see like all of these effigies of him painted onto the concrete and everything. And uh, so, you know, he lives there. And I was just really in the hurt locker because I never climbed before outside of like Zwift, which isn't real because you don't have the pull of gravity threatening you with absolute collapse. And so I'm just kind of churning away in the granny gear on this borrowed gravel bike that I have. And I reached like Roglic's condo. I was like, man, if I give up on this climb, in front of Roglic's house, like that's just going to be a complete and total loser moment. So I have to really keep going just to save face. And I really didn't think I was going to make it. And when I got to the top of the climb, which was, I think, a few kilometers long at like 6%, which is just enough to really kick your ass. I pulled into the driveway of some farmer and I just like laid on the ground staring up at the sky. And it's just like, wow, that's the limit, the real, real limit. I think it's an experience that's common to all cyclists, isn't it? Whether it's from amateurs, from fun cyclists, even when I cycle into town and I've got to cycle back up a hill, I still experience that same pain. But I remember my own defining moment, I think, as experiencing true suffering on a bike came when I took part in the Ariegeoise Sportive in the Pyrenees. I was right at the end of that Sportive, we rode up Plateau de Bay. It was very hot. I was very tired. I wasn't that fit. And I just remember getting these kind of cramps up both legs my whole body was locked into a towel I couldn't could hardly pedal and I remember talking to I think Michael Barry the ex-professional years ago about this very experience and I said to him I couldn't imagine a professional cyclist actually was ever as tired as I was that day and I think he reminded me of a quote which a professional cyclist once said basically you have to pedal till you see Jesus and I kind of did identify with that but it also reminds me of what you said about the limit and I recently read Alex Hutchinson's book Endure and part of that explores the Tim Noakes theory that the limit is not a physical thing at all. In his theory the brain has a mechanism called the central governor which shuts things down. So do you think the pain and suffering is physical or psychological and is putting a stop to it purely down to that limit that the brain imposes on your body to stop you from hurting yourself, essentially? I mean, I think it's a mixture of both. I mean, a lot of writers describe to me the psychological pain being almost worse than the physical pain. For example, like Erska Gigart said to me that she rode this race in France and it was just, you know, one of those one day races and with, I think, some cobbles or something like this. And she was like, I wanted to quit the whole thing, the whole sport. I was so miserable. She described it as screwing the bike, but not the word screwing, just like all day, just torturous riding. And that's worse, she says, than any like, you know, she's a climber. So any kind of climb, if she's on a climb, she has like ways of mediating with the psychological aspect of it. But whereas, you know, every rider has situations where they just really hate. Like, I mean, the sprinters, the time trialists, they're not really like, when it's a climb, like, oh, I'm suffering. I hate this. But when it's a time trial, their pain is very different. And it's they feel as though they have a way of interacting with that pain and mediating it, you know, because they can see they feel good about themselves. And actually, Marlon Royser said something really interesting. Also, she said that she prefers to have a power meter that's a little bit off in a positive way. So it says like, she's like, oh, I'm doing really good. And that's how I can continue through all this pain. She prefers to be lied to a little bit, I think. So it's just interesting, these different psychological tricks that riders have to, you know, ride their own race, so to speak, in against that pain. But the mental aspect of it, I think, is like what makes people really want to quit. Like when I asked all these riders what their worst suffering was, they all describe a scenario in which 
they mentally can't continue. It's like, regardless of the body, like they just feel so bad either about themselves or about the day or the weather or something like this. They just can't go on. It's just, they have to, but it's just horrible. And so I definitely think the mental part of it is huge. The funny thing is we celebrate pain as cycling fans and not a huge fan of Lance Armstrong in a lot of ways, but he did once express something which I think a lot of cyclists identify with. And he said, somebody asked him, you know, what pleasure he got from cycling. He said, I don't cycle for pleasure. I cycle for pain. And I can understand that because I enjoy pushing myself, whether it's running or cycling. I kind of like the pain in a way. I love the feeling of emptiness and tiredness and even get a feeling of satisfaction from having pushed myself. But I guess the point is, I can always stop and nobody's making me do it. And what you did at the end of your feature is you looked at the pressure, either unspoken or or explicit, that professional riders have to kind of embrace and in, endure this pain. And, you know, we celebrate the pain and suffering of professional riders. We exhort them, we stand by the roadsides and tell them to dig in. Are we actually perpetuating an unhealthy situation? And where's the line between pushing hard and pushing too hard? I mean, I think that is one of the central questions of cycling. The other thing is, is that cycling is very stubborn about a lot of things that could benefit cyclists. For example, in basketball, there are sports psychologists on every team and that deal and help with the mental pressure that athletes face. And that's those kinds of systems do not exist in cycling. There are actual structural measures that cycling could take. I mean, for example, like having a real union where riders have like actual option to say no, that this, you know, you're not going to make me ride up here in the snow like this. You're not going to make me like ride in these dangerous conditions. I think a lot about the 2020 tour when they self-neutralized the race in the rain in the first stage, I think. And these kinds of situations are, are kind of unnecessary suffering. We all volunteer when we ride a bike to suffer a little bit. There's a good suffering, right, which is that feeling of tiredness, that feeling of emptiness, that I pushed myself, I achieved something. But there's also bad suffering that really can be mediated and can be mitigated by changing some of the the structural problems in cycling. So Kate's feature, The Many Faces of Suffering, appears in Rouleau 117. Kate tweets at Derailer Kate. Her substack is also called Derailer, and you should subscribe because it's um it's excellent. And even though her architecture Twitter feed doesn't stray too much into cycling these days, I would still recommend it to anyone with an interest in art and culture. And the Twitter handle on that is McMansion Hell. Kate, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on Ruler Conversations. We hope to have more of your work in the magazine soon. I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Rouleur. Rouleur is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. We feature the work of the best writers in cycling, along with the very best photography, elegantly laid out and printed on high-quality paper. Our deep dives into road racing, gravel, adventure cycling and life on two wheels are immersive, independent, agenda-setting and thought-provoking. We aim to educate, entertain, inform and inspire. Our latest magazine, out now, is Rouleau 117, The Body Issue. One of the most fascinating things about road racing is that it is accessible to so many different body shapes. Basketball players are tall, distance runners are slight. But cyclists can be tall, short, stocky, skinny and everything in between. And outside the sport, anybody can cycle. To paraphrase René Descartes, I cycle, therefore I am a cyclist. Rouleau 117 features an exclusive interview with Julien Alaphilippe, the double world champion. Alaphilippe is one of the most physical cyclists in the world tour. His riding style is expressive and hides nothing. We knew we had to have him in the magazine. Also featured in Rouleau 117, in-depth interviews with Theo Gagenhart, Lizzie Banks and Matthias Skelmius. Cultural critic and cycling journalist Kate Wagner reflects on the sport's relationship with pain and suffering. And Rula Italia editor Emilio Previsali reflects on what cycling has in common with the Japanese art of kintsugi. There's also a fascinating interview with Instagram content creator Bo Markson, whose honesty and battle with body dysmorphia is an inspiring tale. 
Beau posts on Instagram with the handle at dadbod underscore cyclist. Rulo 117 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to ruler.cc, hit the subscribe button and enter the code PODCAST15. That's PODCAST15 to get 15% off our regular subscription price. And now, back to the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ruler Magazine Tech Podcast. I am your host, Dan Cavallari, joining you once again from Colorado here in the United States where it is cold and wintry. And uh, joining me today is actually somebody who's also in the U.S., but I think perhaps in a slightly warmer locale. We're going to talk today a little bit about some of the things in your bicycle that make a big difference to your ride quality and to the durability and long-term viability of your bicycle. Uh, And it's all things that generally speaking, you don't see when you buy your bike. And a lot of times, you know, we, we look at new bikes and we see new frame designs, we see new paint colors, and it's very, what a wow factor there. But some of the things that have the biggest effect on your ride, you don't see at all. And so today we're going to talk to Matt Harvey, the founder of Enduro Bearings. He's joining us from Oakland, California. Matt, how's it going over there? Oh, great. Thanks for having me, Dan. I really yeah. appreciate it. Is it a little warmer where you are today? It's a little warmer. Actually, we're having a cold snap, but I know it's not as cold as where you are. It's <laughs> we, If we see a little frost outside, everybody... Oh, I'm I'm staying inside today. I'm not going to ride yeah, my yeah. bike. But... <laughs> and lots of snow and, and cold. So unusual for this time of year. It's usually not quite this cold, but it has yeah. largely, it's made me kind of have to look at the trainer with some disdain and understand that I'm going to be on it for a few months. But Matt, you know, I want to talk, you were just here in Colorado actually a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and we chatted a little bit while you were here launching Alchemy Bikes new mm-hmm. AU line, which is their sort of lightweight, high performance bike line. Uh, and, and there's a partnership there with Enduro Bearings, and we're going to talk a little bit about that partnership. But before we get into it, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, bearings in general. You know, you spent your life or a lot of your life developing better bearings for specific applications. And I think, you know, there's largely been a thought pattern that a bearing is a bearing is a bearing. They, they, they slip and slide. And then along came ceramic bearings and, and they said, well, these slip and slide better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you're, right. you're taking a different approach, uh, especially with things like the XD15 series of bearings that you do. But let's start with a general talk about what makes a good bearing and more specifically, what makes a good bearing for bicycle applications? Right. It's a good question. Uh, and it's a, something I've spent a lot of time on because when I started and I was, say, working for Fisher and we were putting bearings in a full suspension bike, I'd go to King Bearing and buy off the shelf bearings and they'd be wiped out pretty quick. And uh, most of the bearings that you buy uh, over the counter are made for electric motors to spin at 10 or 20,000 RPM and uh, carry pretty light loads. And the bearings in a bicycle are the same size, only they spin at a couple hundred RPM, maybe in a pivot bearing, they don't spin at all. They go back and forth 15 degrees and they take, comparatively speaking, tremendous loads and not just radial loads straight up and down. They take axial loads, which are kind of twisting loads. So you have to design the ins. It may look the same on the outside, but the inside is completely different And it's, as you say at the beginning, you don't see it. It's completely engineered inside. So you have to explain it to people or talk like we're doing right now to realize they're different inside. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk a little bit about that because I think, you know, we tend to think, well, if it's not spinning at a higher speed, it should be easier to make a bearing, right? But the loads are much heavier. So Mm -hmm. as a design consideration for that, what's different? about the actual physical materials inside a bicycle bearing rather than something like for a motor? So given, let's say the same, the industry bearing, let's just take an example, a 6902, there's actually three or four different designs generally for that bearing. And when you buy one from one of the big boys like NTN or SKF, it's made for that high speed. So it's a low grease fill. There'd be like 25% grease, for Mm -hmm. instance, because if you spin it really fast with a full grease fill like we do, filled both sides, that grease would come out and foul the brushes of the motor or the magnets in electric motors. But more importantly, ours have the largest ball you can put inside the bearing. 
with mm-hmm. the deepest grooves. And that what that does is it gives support not only in that radial plane, but in the axial plane, that twisting plane. So the ball, even though it gets twisted to the side, it still has a support on the edges because it has a deep cup, you know, mm-hmm. where, it, where it's rolling against and a lot of surface area. And when you're making a high speed bearing, uh, that doesn't matter. In fact, it's a negative effect because it creates more friction at super high speeds and heat. But we're talking about two different things here. So sure, sure. that's why those king bearings that I put in those fissures would get wiped out so fast. Mm-hmm. So when you say axial loads, I think that's worth a, a point of clarification. I mean, there's a lot of bearings in a bicycle. You know, there's bottom bracket bearings, there's wheel bearings, there's even often, you know, derailleur Usually pulley. 12. You're actually suspended on 12 bearings, yeah. Okay. So does a a wheel bearing, for example, take a different axial load than, say, the bottom bracket bearings? And obviously there's a size different in the the balls in those bearings anyway. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, as a design consideration for a bearing, are you looking at how a a front wheel differs from a rear wheel axial load or even whatever, any load actually, not just limited to axial loads? Yeah, that's a good point. The bottom bracket is the most twisty <laughs> axial load, if you will, because our legs, when we're pedaling, we're not perfect machines. We're not a motor driving that thing. We're legs spinning. Well, maybe you. I'm, I'm pretty perfect. <laughs> oh, well, if, if, you're, if you're on your spin class, then yeah. you're probably much smoother than I am. But um, anyway, it's kind of a, even for the best of us, a, you know, a herky-jerky motion of pedal action. And mm-hmm. so the the ball is getting pulled one side and then the other as your left and right leg go back and forth or you get out of the saddle, go up a hill. So there's these side loads happening in a bottom bracket and you just have two bearings there usually. And so you want uh, certain parameters like as far a distance as apart as possible and large balls to support the uh, load and then also deep cups to for the ball to roll up on the side when it gets rot side to side. In a hub, rear hub, there's more things keeping everything in a line, but there's a huge twisting action between the cassette driver and the hub itself. So when you get out of the saddle and go up a hill, or let's say a pro rider and they have a cog and it's off center from the bearing, again, it's, it's a big twisting load. It's a little different than what we just described with the bottom bracket. So again, it's a little different design. Sometimes we have like double row radial bearings that we designed for that particular application right under the cassette driver. And what does that do for me? Well, this bearing is wider and it stiffens up your axle a little bit. And if you had two next to each other, they might actually pinch when that axle bends or or deflects enough. And then mm-hmm. the, the balls are skidding in there. So mm. in certain situations, you have too lightweight of a setup back there. And the bearings, it's a nice lightweight hub, but it's actually dragging a little bit like a drag brake slightly yeah. when you're going uphill. So I guess, you know, a, a listener might accuse us of focusing on minutia here. I mean, how much of <laughs> that drag will actually matter to the rider? Well, that's what we talk about all the time in cycling because we want the most efficient machine possible, right? We don't have a, Mm -hmm. well, some of our bikes have electric motors now, but usually we don't. But you want everything out of your body going into forward motion. So yeah, we are talking about minutia, but it's as important as tires are super important, uh, thread count and rubber compound, aerodynamics, people you know, spend, bike companies spend so much money on aerodynamics. This is just another ingredient to the whole. So we're looking for watts and there is a wattage story uh, with bearings. Mm -hmm. It's smaller than a lot of claims are, but Mm -hmm. uh, there is an efficiency and wattage story there too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the things that jumped out at me when you were here uh, at the Alchemy Bikes launch was, you know, you, you started by saying there's there's more to bearings than just ceramic. And I think as a default, you know, just because it's, again, it is kind of, an, uh, we don't think a lot about bearings, but it was easy to come out and say, ceramic bearings equal better, <laughs> you know. Yeah. First of all, yeah. explain why, but then also explain what else we should consider when we're looking at upgrading our bearings and what's beyond ceramic. Well, let's go back 10 or 
I guess, 15 years now when ceramic bearings first started getting popular in the cycling industry, there was a lot of uh, mantra, if you will, about, oh, these are better, make you faster, everything. Uh, and the first ceramic hybrid bearings, that's what we're talking about. That's ceramic balls in steel races. The first ones that came out, I was a little suspicious. I didn't do it right away because the steel that we use in steel bearings is called 52100 chromium steel. And when you just put a ceramic ball on that without reconsidering or designing those steel races, uh, they, they wear out pretty quick. You got to service them a lot. They're great out of the box. Most bearings are, but down the road one year from now, I'm sure people who've ridden a lot have had this experience. They're worn out and then you have to chuck them and you just spend a lot of money on bearings. So one thing I was looking for at the time, I had heard of this steel that Airbus had developed for uh, control bearings in the wings of, of their planes that has to resist de-icing compound and all the nasty uh, salt water, everything. And I was looking for the steel and uh, I made some, I had my friend who speaks German, made some calls to the foundry and that didn't work. We couldn't buy it because, you know, the amount of steel we would buy is just nothing to those guys. But I found eventually totally by chance a mountain bike enthusiast who worked in the company. And um, I've been buying the steel from this guy ever since. And so what is this steel? It's specifically made for ceramic balls. So that's when I got excited about the potential of ceramic bearings because a ceramic ball does roll extremely efficiently over a steel race, but you need the right steel so it doesn't wear out like that situation I just talked about sure, sure. before that. Well, and also, I mean, just noting that it has to resist de-icing compounds. I mean, think about how much junk we ride through and put exactly. our bikes through. So it's it's definitely you know, clearly a built-in advantage. Now, the steel you're talking about is XD15, correct? That's right. So they make it, as I said, they make it specifically for airplanes. But what's different about it is you can roll a ceramic ball over it and never re-lubricate it and it won't wear out. So you don't have to service it. So it totally changes the game in ceramic hybrid bearings. Uh, we think of ceramic bearings as quite fragile. You gotta service them. You can't get salt water around them. If you ride in the rain, you gotta clean them out. You know, you gotta, you gotta service them quite often. Mm -hmm. Those 12 mm -hmm. bearings, it's hard to dig them all out and service them all the time. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather ride my bike than work on it after I ride in the rain. So <laughs> yes, these you can see the state of my bikes and, and know that immediately. <laughs> we don't have yeah. tour de France yeah. mechanics taking our bikes apart after right. every day. And I'm a, a perfect uh, subject because I never hardly work on my bike. I've ridden my bike for one bike for over 10 years and I, I never look at the bearings and it just keeps going. And that was my goal with these kind of goes with our name Enduro. I mean, I like stuff to last a long time without uh, having to service or replace them often. So we're always kind of chasing that. And this mm -hmm. material, XD15, you have to think about ceramic bearings in a different way. They're very robust. XD15 mm -hmm. bearings are not fragile like every other ceramic hybrid bearing. Mm -hmm. What's different about the steel? I mean, I remember you showed a graphic of sort of a microscopic view of the steel and there was just fewer gaps and it was a smoother image. What is that exactly that we're looking at? What makes the steel different? So number one, it's a, a stainless steel. So it's not going to rust. Uh, they call it a super stainless. So they make a stainless steel and then it gets remelted at high pressure and temperature. They introduce nitrogen and nitrogen is what is hardening it mostly instead of carbon. And those, that grain structure we were looking at under the microscope is the grain of, and you see the carbons kind of linking up and they, they look like cracks or they look like uh, spider webs in the steel. And mm -hmm. when the ball rolls over that, those are kind of brittle elements or parts. And what happens eventually is the ball, like a ceramic ball, especially because it's harder, it keeps rolling over those areas and then little pieces break out like a pothole. Mm -hmm. And that's called galling. And then eventually that pothole, like a car rolling over, it gets bigger and bigger. And then you feel that it's rough. 
and then you chuck your bearings. But with uh, XD15, when we looked at that picture, all of those, it looks like pepper sprinkled on something because all of those carbons are very homogenous and spread out mm -hmm. and they mm -hmm. don't move because of mm -hmm. the, the makeup of it. So as the ball rolls over it, it actually burnishes the race and it gets smoother over time. And we've been doing a lot of testing in our lab over the last year and the wattage uh, soak or use actually goes down. It's the only bearing where it changes in that direction. It'll actually improve over time. Mm -hmm. Is there an inflection point for that? I mean, at some point the bearing has to wear out, right? Uh, um, yeah, I mean, it takes a long time with these bearings. We offer a lifetime guarantee and you know, like what's lifetime? It's nothing's forever, right? But right, yeah, eventually right. they, they would get a little looser. That's the only mm -hmm. effect. Mm -hmm. But I've had one, I talked to one, a retired pro now. He's got, he believes over 50,000 miles on his bottom bracket and he's still riding it. And he's had that bottom bracket 10 years. Wow. The guy wow. rides, I mean, I wish I could ride as much as him or I, <laughs> I wish I could ride as fast as him. But anyway, that's an example of how they go. Matt, we've talked a lot about sort of this this new metal, this new steel that you're using. It's not really new, I guess, at this point, but it, it's new to the bike world. Mm -hmm. How it sort of turns the paradigm of bearing wear on its head. You know, it breaks in rather than wears out. You know, you have a whole lineup of, of bearings here. You know, uh, let's talk specifically about some of the products that you offer that use the XD15 material. And also, I think a good place to start is because I just saw you at Alchemy Bikes, you know, you're doing a collaboration with them. So let's talk a little bit about what that looks like, you know, in, in what a rider can see visually as, as the components that they will get from Enduro and what those components will do for them in the long term in terms of their ride quality, durability, and then that sort of thing. Sure. So we offer them, first place we looked at, uh, which is always the most, I guess you'd call it problematic bearings, is the bottom bracket. So we developed hmm. XD15 bearings, I think now for every bottom bracket solution, which there's many <laughs> uh, <laughs> standards out there. But yes. uh, quote unquote so standards. We, yes. Yeah. <laughs> So we have to drill a lot of uh, that stuff and machine it, grind it, heat treat it. It all takes special processes different from other steels, but we make it for all those permutations. So that was the first area. Just, oh, just a little background. Like, you know, it's not easy to work with this stuff. The lead time is over a year. Then it takes more than a year to process. So we're talking, um, yeah, from... Um, metal that we get, which is steel bar that we have to drill because you can't get it in tubing to the finished product. It's usually two and a half years wow. for every size. Oh so we have, yeah, it's, it's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> we have all the bottom bracket sizes and then we've worked through hub bearings. I think we have 35 hub bearing sizes now in XD15, which is more than I think most people even offer in regular ceramic bearings. So those are the two import, most important areas because your bottom bracket and hubs are your essential drivetrain components besides the chain, of course, super important, but um, we don't make chains. So we work on bearings. So your bottom bracket and hubs, uh, that's what we cover first. We also make them for headsets. Mm -hmm. You know, headset again is a pivot or steering bearing not as essential to your uh, efficiency, but you want it to last and not have to service it. Mm -hmm. Now the, the max hit bearing or uh, bottom brackets and headsets, did they use the XD15? Mm -hmm. No. So max hit is a design element. XD15, it is an expensive product because of that steel. And then those, some of those things I just explained with the time right. it takes to make them. But mm -hmm. bottom bracket price point is $300 and hub bearing upgrade is $400. So max hit comes in around half that. And what max hit is, it's got some similar elements in that it's stainless. It's 440C, so it won't rust. But it's a different concept in that we eliminate the aluminum cup. Max hit means no more aluminum cups that you press bearings into. We make the bearing as the component. And again, as a bearing maker, it's something we can do that not many people could do. The bearing race, outer race, has to have a threaded element and uh, the spline for driving it into the bottom bracket. Let's say 
if you're used, talking about a BSA cup, it needs to thread in. So the outer race is the, uh, the bearing cup. And mm-hmm. because of that, we can use much larger balls and we get some advantages that with that material that we can also offer a lifetime warranty because it lasts so long. Yeah. And eliminating the aluminum cup, the function there, I mean, steel against aluminum is equals bad, correct? I mean, it's like it would wear out quicker. Yeah. Well, there's always a chance for creaking or movement between that Mm -hmm. interface. That's a Mm -hmm. challenge that every maker has with aluminum cups and pressing bearings in. But more to that, there's just not that much room. When somebody designs the bottom bracket spindle and then the hole in the, or the, the bore in the frame, then you have to put a bearing in between. It's kind of the last thing that everybody considers. But you really want a big bearing so it's efficient, it doesn't pinch and be inefficient and wear out quickly. So with this kind of aha moment, moment we came up with an interface where you can, uh, oh, well, let's just get rid of the cup, the aluminum cup, and make it the whole thing out of bearing steel. Actually not bearing steel, stainless steel. And we can use, instead of a two millimeter ball, we have a five millimeter ball. So, well, that doesn't sound like a huge difference, but you have to understand that a ball has mass. So you go from, it's seven times bigger than the regular ball. So it rolls over dirt better. And it's like a wheel, like a 29 inch wheel rolling over rocks and stuff. It rolls over dirt inside more efficiently and it rolls slower and more efficiently in your bottom bracket. So we've Mm -hmm. also been testing those and there's a a wattage story there as well. They're Mm -hmm. more efficient. Okay. Now I want to, I kind of want to take a step back and, you know, one of the things that caught my eye when, when uh, we were looking at the bikes that are outfitted with enduro bearings at Alchemy was the pulley wheels Mm -hmm. and talk a little bit about the pulley wheels. And and we, you and I had a very, very brief conversation about (laughs) them and, and I had asked about oversized pulley wheels and and you had something pretty interesting to say about that. But first of all, tell me about the structure of the pulley wheels that you offer. So we've been making them for a while out of, uh, we machine them out of solid Delrin that has Teflon inside of it. Mm-hmm. And, and so they're self-lubricating, number one. Delrin is extremely durable, much more durable than molded plastic and mm-hmm. much more durable than aluminum, actually, that gets anodized. And so they last much longer and they give you a crisper shift, you know, years down the road. When your jockey wheels wear out, the thing you notice most is the shifting starts to kind of get lazy. So machine Delrin is really good for that. So we machine them with no holes in them so you can wipe them off and you don't have to pick dirt out of all the holes. That's actually my mm-hmm. favorite part. But uh, <laughs> anyway, because, <laughs> you know, we all work or try not to work on our bikes too much. But right. I just want to wipe those things off quick with a rag. Yeah. Same. But they also have... XD15 bearings in them so they last forever and you don't have to service them if you don't want. They won't rust. They won't wear out or corrode. Um, Because we make the bearings, the upper bearing is a really tight clearance so it doesn't flex at all. And you have, that's your shift jockey wheel so it's really crisp, fast shifting. And then Mm -hmm. the lower one, it's built with play inside so that it can realign with the front chain ring as your chain comes around and offer less friction as the chain is fed back to the jockey mm-hmm. wheel comes around. That's interesting to think about that as, you know, I keep saying the word minutia, but I mean, how much that matters, right? Like these are tiny jockey wheels on your derailleur that we probably never think that there's a difference in them, right? There's just the upper one and the lower one. Right. And here we are with two completely different designs serving two completely different functions. That's another one of those hidden advantages for riders. It's one of those products that if you're not thinking about it, it's doing a great job. Uh, and, and I think, you know, this is a, a prime example of that. Now you mentioned when we were chatting, uh, I asked you about, of course, oversized pulley wheels, which mm-hmm. became all the rage a few years ago, uh, right. if, because the idea is that, you know, you, you have a bigger jockey wheel. So there's the chain has to wrap around less, which reduces friction in the chain. You do not make one, correct? No. And I'll tell you the reasons because it never made sense to me. And I've talked to enough engineers that know more than I do to not do it. At first, you would see all both jockey wheels, large diameter. 
uh, larger than the, let's say the manufacturer's SRAM or Shimano. So now you only see the upper jockey wheel. Uh, I mean, the lower jockey wheel larger. The upper jockey wheel is the same size as those companies. Why is that? Why did they go back? Well, number one, when you have a really large upper jockey wheel, it takes a long time for the chain to come off to shift those to the, the cog. So your shifting efficiency goes way down. So the large upper jockey wheels has largely been eliminated by most designs because of that. When you have larger jockey wheels, you have to add more chain links. So it's a wash between the bending moment and then these extra chain links. All the chain links in a chain, 110, 115 links, those are all little bearings. And they're not ball bearings, they're plane bearings. So most of the friction in the drivetrain comes from the chain. So, you know, about seven watts in your drivetrain that it takes, and five of those are from the chain. The rest are the bearings. On the lower one, most of the time, we're not in perfect alignment with the front chainring. That position is maybe two cogs. And uh, again, the uh, conceptual friction, I should tell you that it's conceptual friction because that's what we're talking about, is the same at that place. If you go out to the outer choices though, and you have a lot of chain deflection out in the small cog or the all the way up to the big one, and you can sight down it, there is more friction with a larger jockey wheel. You can hear it and you can actually hear it. They're usually aluminum and they're noisy and noise is friction. And you can see the wear on the, on the larger cogs. If you read, uh, so Shimano, I think everybody would agree is a pretty good engineering company. And uh, on their lowest $15 derailleur, Altus, they use a large jockey wheel on the bottom. And if you read what they say about it, it's to for chain retention because they use a lighter spring on that derailleur for beginner people riding bikes. And mm-hmm. to make up so the chain doesn't jump off, they use a larger jockey wheel. And that's chain retention, read friction. Okay, okay. So I guess that begs the the question, and we're just about out of time here, but if the chain is a significant source of friction, Mm -hmm. do you at Enduro Bearings have your eyes on improving Mm -hmm. that component? You know, I think about it, but I need, if somebody will give me about uh, half a, probably maybe a billion dollars to build the factory, (laughs) maybe I'll uh, consider it. (laughs) Oh, that's that's an easy ask. (laughs) So... I'll do a GoFundMe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seems like a, a pretty huge engineering undertaking to improve the chain. And I mean, is that why we've seen a few iterations of drivetrains in just the recent past where they've tried to eliminate the chain altogether? Is that basically why? Chain is a pretty difficult thing to beat, I think. Uh, you know, it, it is actually extremely efficient, you know, compared to drive shafts and so forth. That's why we still see chains uh, mm-hmm. out there. But to change the technology of the rolling elements in the chain, that's a big trick. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think we could get into it. There's other materials that I've considered. The design of the chain is going to be hard to beat in general. That's that's why it's been sticking around for a hundred and some odd years on the bike. Yeah, yeah. Chain design is really interesting. If you want to dig into that back a hundred years, watch, look what people did. It's fascinating. Yeah, stuff. yeah. I always love uh, to recommend the dancing chain uh, as yeah. a book to read. The notion that people used to reach down with their hand to shift the the chain oh, from yeah. one cog to another is, is fascinating to me. Vel- Velocio. Uh, yeah, yeah. Great. It's a great, <laughs> great book. If you Frank Berto, it's uh, the dancing chain. Great, great one to read if you want some history on that. Matt, thanks for taking some time today to to talk bearings. I know it's rare to find somebody passionate about bearings, and I appreciate that <laughs> the, the the geekery there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if you want to learn more about Enduro Bearings and what they're doing with XD15, I would recommend going to endurobearings.com. And of course, you can check out the Alchemy AU line at alchemybikes.com to see some of the, the projects that Al- Alchemy and Enduro are working on together. Matt, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. And uh, it's, it's always a pleasure to chat. Hey, I really appreciate it. It was fun.
Yeah. And if you all have questions about this episode of the podcast or any of the others, you can reach out directly to me, Slow Guy Fast Ride on Twitter or at Slow Guy on the Fast Ride on Instagram. And of course, you can reach out to at Ruler Magazine on any of the social channels to ask questions, make recommendations, or just give high fives. We're always happy to, to, to chat with you folks too. Matt, thanks again. And to those of you listening, thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Ruler Magazine podcast. You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Ruler Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Ruler magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Ruler and on Instagram at Ruler magazine or visit our website at ruler.cc. This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.